So last week, if you guys were here last week, um, we, had a, we had a pretty stern and serious message uh, about the danger of unforgiveness. If you guys were here, uh, you know, Ashley was telling me that someone, uh, she ran into someone in the bathroom and the person, the, the girl obviously is in the, the restroom. Ashley goes into the women's restroom. So, um, you know, she was in the women's restroom and, and one of the girls came up. She's like, wow, that was, a, that was a pretty heavy message. And Ashley was like, yeah, it was. Um, but yeah, so prayerfully last week, the Holy Spirit, you know, spoke to many people and, uh, and is continuing to speak to all of us regarding that topic of unforgiveness. Uh, but this week, in order to give us a chance uh, to breathe after last week's message, tonight we're going to be taking a break from Matthew, as I said, and we're going to be going over to Luke. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at a familiar passage of Scripture. It's a familiar passage of Scripture in Luke 15. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke 15. And tonight we're going to be focusing in on grace. We're going to be focusing on grace. Ephesians 2.8, it says that it is by grace through faith that we have been saved. Uh, this is the way that it is. This, is. this is how we come into a saving faith in Jesus. It's by his grace. And that's amazing. That's incredible. Uh, we did nothing to deserve his love and forgiveness. You know, we were ignorant of our need for him. And he opened our eyes to show us our need. And not only did he open our eyes to show us our need, he also supplied our need. He gave us everything that we needed to be reconciled to him. We didn't do a thing. We didn't do anything. But what I find even more amazing, even more amazing is the fact that even after the eye-opening experience, even after having been awakened to our need, even after having our need supplied by his grace, his spirit living inside of us, even after all of that, when we turn our backs on him as his children, his grace still abounds all the more. You would think that after being given the understanding of sin and salvation, that this would now mean that God's expectation is that we are never to fall short again. And therefore, we are now going to be held ultimately accountable for all of our sins that we commit post-regeneration, post-salvation, since now we know better, right? But thank you, Jesus, that this is not how the Lord operates. He is a faithful, compassionate, infinitely gracious Father. And that's what I wanted to remind us all of all tonight, his grace. And so the title of tonight's message is In Light of Grace, if you're taking notes, in light of grace, and as I said, we're going to be in Luke 15, so if you haven't opened up your Bibles yet, open up your Bibles to Luke 15. A lot of you, again, as I said, you may be familiar with, with this uh, parable that we're going to be looking at tonight. It's commonly subtitled, The Prodigal Son, and you, you may have heard Bible studies taught on this passage of Scripture many times, perhaps even here at Zeal, <clears throat> uh, but regardless, this portion of Scripture is so worth looking at over and over and over and over again. I remember when I, you know, when I was younger in my faith, uh, I used to listen to a lot of different you know, Bible studies. It wasn't just when I went to church. It was like, man, I was, I was putting the word of God into me all day, every day. And there was this one particular Bible study that was given on the Song of Solomon by one of my favorite teachers. And I would just listen to that thing over and I, I, I had it memorized, but I would still listen to it over and over and over again because it was just so rich and so good. Um, so... 
We're going to be looking at Luke 15, and if you've looked at it before, that's fine. It's worth looking over again. Uh, but before we get into our main text, I just wanted to briefly uh, read and go over the verses leading up to verse 11, which is where we're going to be tonight. Um, so at the start of Luke 15, uh, it says that sinners and tax collectors were coming to Jesus to, to hear what he had to say. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they saw this, and they began to complain and they began to, to look down on Jesus because he was welcoming these vile and evil people and eating with them. Oh, how dare he? And in response to this, Jesus begins telling some parables. And um, let me open up my Bible to Luke 15. I was telling y'all to turn, I didn't even turn myself. Goodness gracious. All right, so he begins telling a bunch of, not a bunch, he begins telling a few parables when the Pharisees are looking at him and looking down at him. So let's look at the first parable of Jesus. Uh, it's going to be Luke 15. We're going to begin in verse 4. He says, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And we'll pause there. So Jesus, in this first parable, he's communicating to these religious leaders that these sinners and tax collectors that he was welcoming, these vile and evil people, are exactly the reason that he came. He's basically saying to them, maybe even a little bit sarcastically, like, hey, I know you guys don't need God's forgiveness. You're not like these evil sinners. Your righteousness is evident. But these lost sinners, they need to come back to the fold. They are a lost sheep, and they need to come back to the fold, and that's why I welcome them. My kindness towards them, my welcoming towards them, is for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. You may not need repentance, religious leaders, but these people do. And when they do repent, there is so much joy in heaven because of it. More joy over them than over you who have no need to repent of anything because you're so righteous. And then he goes into the parable of the lost coin. So let's read that parable, Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Different parable, same message. You, you, you may not be lost, scribes and Pharisees, or at least you don't think you are, but these people are lost, and God is searching for them. And when they are found, when even just one comes to repentance and leaves their sins behind, there is joy in the presence of God's angels. Now, that, that could mean that the angels are rejoicing, or it could mean that God is rejoicing and the angels are observing this joy that is filling heaven. Either way, there is joy in heaven. These parables and, and the parable of the lost son that we're going to be going over tonight, they're all summed up by what Jesus said in, in Luke 19.10. In Luke 19.10, he said, The Son of Man 
has come to seek and to save the lost. So now let's get into our main text and let's read Luke 15 and we're going to read verses 11 through 19. So Luke 15 verse 11 says this, he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Now, one thing that we need to understand is how heart-wrenching this demand was for this youngest son to make. He wasn't merely asking his dad for an advance on his inheritance. These inheritances, they were not given to the children until the father died. The father had to die before these inheritances were given to the children. So essentially, this son was wishing that his father was dead. Like, hey, I know you're my dad, and that's cool and all, but your existence here on this earth is getting in the way of what I really want, which is my inheritance. So uh, you can just go ahead and drop dead or just give me the cash, like whatever, whatever one you want to do. If you want to die so I can get the inheritance or if you just want to just give me the inheritance and either way, I'm fine. Just give me the money. Not only that, this inheritance was not simply a cash inheritance. This inheritance was one that came with responsibility. His inheritance was a portion of the estate that the family owned. And, and with that inheritance came the responsibility to run the estate, to take over the, the family business, if you will. So this son was lazy. He was lazy. He didn't want to do the work. He just wanted the money. He wanted dad to drop dead. He wanted to take the cash. And he didn't care about the hard work that his father had put into, into the, the whole thing to provide for him and this inheritance and the estate that he lived on. This youngest son, he wanted to live his own way on someone else's dime. And the father in the parable, he would have had every right, he would have had every right just to smack his son across the face and say, you're getting nothing. You're getting nothing. But, but, but since you asked, get out. Leave. Like you're, you're, you're dead to this family. You're no longer a part of this family. You can leave. He would have had every right to say that to this son. This son, he broke the fifth commandment, which was to honor your father and your mother. You don't do something like this son did and get away with it. There would have been an expectation of a severe punishment for this son. The entire town or village, they would have looked at this father shamefully if he allowed his son to do this thing. The law of God would have been on the father's side if he would have let the swift hand of 
of his justice go across his son's face. But despite the shame, the father does allow it. He does allow it. He gives his son his portion of the inheritance. As though he were dead, he grants his son's wish. And if there are non-believers in here tonight or watching this later, anybody who has never come to know Christ or you are what we would call a, a prodigal son, a lost son or a lost daughter, this is such an apt description of the human condition. We have worked for nothing that we have. We have worked for nothing that we have. The air in our lungs, the blood in our veins, our hearts and minds that operate without any effort of our own. These are all involuntary things. God sustains us, and he has given us an understanding of right and wrong. Non-believers, they know this inherently, though they are not obedient to the knowledge of right and wrong. And believers, they know there is right and wrong because they have been revealed, it's been revealed to them by God and his Holy Spirit and his word, and we now have the power of obedience. And though we know good and evil, our hearts and our flesh, they lean towards evil. We choose our own way. We choose to live our own way while living on someone else's dime, on God's dime. And God allows it. Unregenerate sinners are slaves of sin, so they obey their master. But us believers, we have the choice. We have a choice. And he still allows it to happen when we choose our own way. And so this kid... This, this son, he, he goes out far from his home. The parable tells us that he goes far from home to a distant country. He goes far away from all the people that he knows and those that would know him. He flees the accountability that would have been present if he stayed close to home. He just wanted to live in sin without the burden of someone approaching him and offering correction. How many of you have ever been there? How many of you are there? How many of you are, are thinking about going there? You avoid God's house. You avoid God's people because you want to live in sin. You stay far away from fellowship in order to avoid accountability. You may be even showing up. Like you're here every Friday night. You're here every Sunday. You're here every Thursday. You may be showing up to all of the gatherings but you refuse to actually fellowship, to actually fellowship and let anybody get too close to you because you don't want them to see what really fills your life because you don't want the accountability. There are some of you in here who, who may be in an ungodly relationship, but nobody knows it. Some of you in here may be having a hard time and just giving in to pornography, but nobody knows it. Some of you in here may just be smoking weed or doing other drugs, coke, meth, whatever, and no one knows it. There may be some in here who are just giving in to homosexual tendencies. This is just who I am. And no one knows it. No, this is not just who you are. Whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you're battling, it's not just who you are. It's not who you are. That's the sin that you are battling. But for us believers, we have ultimate victory in Christ. We have ultimate victory in Christ. Again, I'm talking to believers right now. And we as God's people, 
We ought not treat our brothers and sisters according to their sins and their battles. We need to treat our brothers and sisters according to the victory. According to the victory that they already have, we are overwhelmingly victorious in Christ. Yeah, you may be battling drug addiction. You may be battling sexual sin and temptation. You may be battling selfishness or self-centered thinking. But the victory is already yours. You just got to keep fighting. You got to keep seeking the Lord. You got to keep pouring more of God's presence into your life through the word and through times of prayer. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, it says this, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. And another aspect of sowing to the Spirit is fellowship and accountability. You need to keep yourself accountable. You need to seek out accountability. You need to make yourself correctable and confrontable. You need to not go to a distant country in order to be left alone with your vices and your sins. Your vices and your sins will destroy you. Pastor Steve has often stated multiple times that sin will take you farther than you're willing to go. It will cost you more than you're willing to pay, and it will keep you longer than you're willing to stay. And that's what happened to this kid in the parable. That's what happened to this kid in the parable. After the, after the initial fleeting pleasure of sin, after all of his money runs out and all of his friends just run out on him, he's left impoverished and starving, looking to feed his hunger with things that are not meant for human consumption. How many of you have been in a place like that? Or are you in a place like that right now? You turn your back on the truth to follow your own way. And then once you've bankrupted yourself from following your own way, you look to false ideologies and false belief systems, things that are not fit for human consumption, the power of positive thinking, the secret, minimalism, veganism, atheism, agnosticism, Islam, Hinduism. You want to be a social justice warrior. It's got to be woke, man. Maybe, maybe, maybe the key to all this, I just need to live in a van and go live a hippie life. You turn to all of these things that are not fit for human consumption. You turn to these things for sustenance. But it always has been and always will be the word of God in Jesus Christ who can provide us with all the sustenance that we need for life. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In him is life. And that life is the light of all mankind, it says in John chapter 1. Where do we find the knowledge of him? It's in his word. It's scripture. It gives us life. It's our sustenance. 
But then this kid in the parable, he comes back to his senses. And he realizes that though he may have ruined his position of, of being a son in his father's house, though he may have left a permanent stain on himself in his own father's mind, he thought maybe his father would be merciful enough to at least just make him a slave. Like maybe he can work his way back into his father's good graces. Like, yeah, I, I ruined my inheritance. Like, I'm not worthy to be his son because of what I've done. But, but if I could just be a slave in his house, like if I could just be a slave in his house, that will be enough. Anything is better than what I'm doing right now. And I have definitely been in this place. In the past, I've fallen so hard into sin that I began to think that I had to punish myself before coming back to God. That I, that I had to spend time away from the Lord's presence before I could earn the right to be acceptable to him again. Like, I, 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 can't, I can't go to him right away. I've, I've messed up so badly, I can't go to him right away. I have to suffer in this depression and this loneliness for a few days before I can rack up enough points to be able to come back to him. Like, I, I have to not do that sin that I did for a, for a few weeks before I can go back to my father just to kind of quell his anger. That's how our minds work. But that's not how the mind of God works. So let's continue reading this parable. Luke chapter 15, we're going to read verses 20 through 24. That's what it says. Speaking of the son. So he got up, went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his son's neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring a fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with the feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So there's a few things going on here. So let's try to unpack it all. The father, he saw his son coming. He saw his son coming, went out to meet him, and he embraced him. First of all, he went running. He went running. Now, running in this time was not something that a man of status did. They just don't do that. They don't run. It was unheard of. But here, Jesus is describing this man of status running to meet his son as he was approaching. The word that was used for, for ran when it says that he ran, it's a word that was used for running a race, like running to win. Like there's a per like I got to get there. This father was eager to get to his boy. And that's extremely significant to know because this boy he chose his inheritance over his father. He would rather have his inheritance than his dad. He dishonored his father. According to Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, this son should have been stoned to death. He should have been killed. He was rebellious, and he did not obey his parents. That's a crime worthy of capital punishment. It would have been a shameful thing, as I said earlier, for this father to receive this son even back into his family. But not only was he willing to receive him back, 
this father was eager. He was eager to receive his son back. He was watching and waiting for his son to come back. That's why he was able to see his son coming from a long way. He was watching and waiting. And as he ran out to meet his son, no doubt everyone in the town was observing this man of status, shamefully running to meet and embrace his disgrace of a son. But this father didn't care about the shame. He didn't care about the shame. He just wanted to receive his son back into his family. And not only that, not only that, because this son's offense was punishable by death, the father runs. He meets his son outside of of the village or the town so that as they re-entered into the village, if anyone wanted to condemn his son to death, they were going to have to go through the father first. I hope to God you guys are seeing the parallel here. Even in the midst of our sin and rebellion, God is waiting for us to return. He's watching and waiting for us to return. He sees us even when we are far away off from him. He sees us. And the minute, the, and the second that we turn our hearts to return to him, he's already running toward us to receive us. Already. The accuser of the brethren, the enemy of our souls, Satan, he may be shouting out our offenses. He may be accusing us before God. He may be trying to convince us that God would be ashamed to receive us back into the fold. And that is most certainly what keeps us from turning back to the Father in the first place. But God doesn't care about the supposed shame because he has taken care of the shame by the work that he did on the cross. There is no more shame. He took on the shame, despising it because of the joy that was set before him, which was you and me. He already took care of the shame. And so he is racing toward us to receive us and to remind us that we are no longer condemned. Christ was condemned for us. Just like the father in the parable embraced his son. And if anyone wanted to condemn his son, they had to go through him first. So too, our heavenly father is letting us know that if anyone wants to condemn us, even Satan, they have to go through Jesus Christ first. He is our defender. He is our advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, If anyone does sin, which you will, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it's so amazing. So amazing that the son, he doesn't even get to finish his entire rehearsed speech. I don't know if you guys caught that. He didn't even get to finish his speech. He had a whole speech prepared. He was supposed to say, I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me your slave. But before he could even get to the make me your slave, the father doesn't even let him finish. He doesn't even let him finish before he tells the servants to bring out all of the items that would prove to everyone observing that this wayward son, this wayward child, still is his son and every bit of part of the family as he ever was. Nothing changed. 
There was no earning his way back. There was no suffering for a while before he could come back. There was no being a slave for a little bit and then maybe I could become his son again. As soon as his father saw him returning, he was instantly back in the family as if he never left. And that's how it is with us. We don't need to punish ourselves. We don't need to suffer for a few days or a few weeks after we've fallen into sin and then we can come back to God. We don't need to listen to the voice of the enemy when he tells us that God is ashamed of us. Psalm 86, five, it says, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. God is ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive. He's not waiting for you to punish yourself for you to pay the price for your own sins and after you've done enough time and and forgiveness jail, then you can come to him. Absolutely not. He is ready to forgive you. He is ready to forgive you and he is already taking care of your sins. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming in in John chapter one, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let me say that again. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he came to do, to take away sin, to remove sin from our lives. And then in John 19, 30, Jesus' last words, it is finished. It is finished. The job was complete. His crucifixion and suffering, it was enough to take away the sins of the world. And if you believe, if you believe, He has taken away your sins. He has taken away your sins, all of your sins. The sins of your past, the sins of your present, and the sins of your future. He has taken all of them. You have to believe that because that's what happened. And that's what he's done. He has atoned for all of your sins. He has paid the price for all of your sins. He has cleansed you of all of your sins. You are completely spotless and clean and perfect in his eyes because when you first believed Jesus Christ took all of your sins and imperfections, he nailed them to the cross, and then he gave you all of his righteousness so that when the Father looks at you, All he sees is the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. It is glorious, and it's all because of his grace. He's not ashamed. God is not ashamed of you. Rather, he wants to celebrate your repentance, and he wants to celebrate your return. Just like the shepherd who finds his lost sheep, or the woman who finds her lost coin, And just like this father in this parable who received his son back. This is the amazing father in heaven that we have. But let's finish off the parable. Let's read Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. It says, Now his older son was in the field. As he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, 
he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? Son, the father said to him, you you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, as we briefly look at this older son, this this other son, uh, we see that this guy, he was just as lost and without hope as this wayward son who left the house. This son was self-righteous. This son, although he seemed to be the one who was obedient to his father while his younger brother was bringing shame to the family name, he was just as in need of the grace of his father. First of all, he obviously didn't care about his younger brother. Instead of being happy about his brother uh, returning from his life of sinful living, he's upset that there was a party being thrown in his honor. Instead of being happy for his dad, who got his son back, he was obviously super excited about his youngest son returning. This son, he tries to make him feel bad about his joy and his excitement about this son who returned. Instead of earlier in the parable, coming to his dad's defense when this, this runt of a son was like, give me, your, give me my inheritance, instead of defending his dad and trying to keep his brother from leaving the home, he just lets it happen without saying a word. And instead of understanding that everything that his father owns, he, he already owns and he has open access to, he pouts. He pouts that his father never gave him and his friends a little animal to party with. This is a self-righteous and narcissistic man who needed the grace of God. Self-righteous and narcissistic people, they don't like when others are given attention, especially if they think the person who's getting the attention is not as good as they are. They think they're better than them. They can't be happy when others are experiencing God's kindness and love because they themselves, they don't really know what it is to experience God's kindness and love. This, of course is a representation of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders who, at the start of Luke 15, they were complaining about Jesus welcoming the vile and evil sinners and tax collectors. One commentator writes this. He says, The Pharisees had a religion of good works. By their fasting, their studying, their praying and giving, they hoped to earn the blessings from God and merit eternal life. They knew little or nothing about the grace of God. When they saw Jesus receiving and forgiving irreligious people, they rebelled against it. Even more, they failed to see that they themselves also needed the Savior. And we can begin to act like these Pharisees and scribes if we're not careful. To think that we're better off and more righteous than others because we have a better connection with God or because we know more than others. And this attitude, it will affect the way that you view your brothers and your sisters in the same way that the Pharisees and the scribes, they viewed these sinners and tax collectors. 
You'll be, you'll be so quick to point out the speck in your brother or your sister's eye while completely ignoring the huge log that's in your own eye. You're so arrogantly confident in what you know that you begin to hold your brothers and your sisters to your standard of righteousness. Be like me. Get on my level. You're supposed to do all things without grumbling and complaining. Why are you complaining, bro? You really need to check your heart. Your yes is supposed to be yes and your no is supposed to be no. You can't even keep that together. So I'm just done with you. I spend so much time with the Lord. I know his word better than all these sinners over here. They don't even read their Bibles regularly. <laughs> there is such an absence of grace in these heart attitudes. And the only reason I know that these attitudes exist among people here, I'm sure they do, is because uh, they existed in me and still sometimes exist in me. When you're young in the Lord and when you're really growing closer to him, you can develop a pharisaical attitude. You really can. You have, you have all the verses memorized. You have all the answers you know all the right things to say because, you know, you've heard others say them. You know, you, you, you find your righteousness just simply in knowing all of these things. I remember a preacher one time, he said something to the effect of, you know, you, you say all the right things, you quote this person and that person, and, and, you, and it all sounds so profound, but you're just being a parrot. That's all that you are. You're just a parrot. You don't know the things that they knew. You don't understand the depths of their words because you're simply just repeating what they said. You didn't go through the suffering and the hardship that led them to say what they said. The point is this. We need to be humble. We need to be humble and we need to be careful not to view ourselves more highly than we ought. We need to be walking fountains of grace. Holding each other accountable? Yes, absolutely. Self-righteously? Arrogantly? Get on my level? No, that's not the right heart. We need to be confident in his grace rather than our own knowledge and our own works. Looking at the other son in the parable, God... Uh, God has a fattened calf for all of us. He has a fattened calf for all of us. A fattened calf is a feast that could feed hundreds. A fattened calf fed hundreds of people. And the fattened calf was given in this parable, it was given not because it was earned, but because of his grace. But instead of, instead of going for the fattened calf of grace, some of us, like this son, were fixating on having a goat the goat of our own good works, the goat of our own knowledge, the goat of our own merit. Stop thinking about the goat of your works and return to the fattened calf of God's grace. For those of you to whom this applies, you need to be set free from yourself. You need to be set free from yourself. You need to understand that you cannot please God with the things that you do. Even as a believer, even as a believer, your deeds, 
your deeds, or the things that you know, they will never make you more superior in God's eyes. You guys understanding this? The things that you do and the things that you know and the right things that you say, they will not make you more superior in God's eyes. So your deeds and the things that you know and the things that you say should never make you feel more superior than others. What pleases God is your faith. What pleases God is faith in his son and what he has done on the cross. What pleases God is your trust in him and not in yourself. Faith in God and a born-again life will lead to greater evidences of holiness and righteousness in your life as you follow him. But you achieving holiness and righteousness in your life is not what puts you in greater standing with God. God told Abraham that he was going to make him a father of many nations, and Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Nothing Abraham did was credited to him as righteousness. Nothing he did made him right with God. It was his belief, his faith in what God said of him. He believed what God said to be true. And now God, he is, he is telling you that your sins can be forgiven. He's telling you that you can be set free from your sin, that you can have an abundant life, that you can be alive in Christ, that you can have the assurance that you will be in heaven with him forever, that you can have salvation and eternal life if you would just believe. And if you do, he will credit that to you as righteousness. There's nothing that you can do to earn it, nothing that you can do to work for it, nothing that you can do to suffer for it, nothing that you can do. It's all because of his grace. This, this is all true in light of his grace. And I just want to make sure that, like, you know, we looked at the other son, but I want to make sure we go back to the, to the first son. I just want to remind you all of the grace of, of our father, if anybody in here is, is, is stuck in a cycle of sin or you're willingly, walk, you're willingly sinning against God, you're transgressing against God, a lot of times what will happen is the shame that comes from the enemy. The shame, the, the, our, the accuser of the brethren. Like, look, everything that's, not everything, Satan is a liar, he's the father of lies, right? But the one thing, the one thing that Satan is honest about the one thing that when he says it, he's not lying is how much of a gross sinner you are. He, he's not lying when he says that. He's telling the truth. That's the one and only time that he's telling the truth. You are a disgusting sinner. This thing that you did, even though you're a child of God, is disgusting. And he brings about all this shame, all this guilt, all this condemnation. And what happens is all that guilt and shame and condemnation, it pushes us farther away from the Lord. Because you're like, oh my gosh, how shameful I am. How could God ever want anything to do with me? But let me remind you how this whole thing started. Were you perfect when this whole thing started? No. You were a disgusting and vile sinner when all of this started. God saved you while you were dead in your sins. And so when, when you are his child... And you go to a distant country, and, and, you, and you turn away from him. You sin against him. He's, he's just waiting for you to come back. 
He is watching and waiting for you. He's ready to forgive. I remember looking up that word ready in, in Psalm 86, and, and the, the word ready is like, like, like somebody at a, at, a, at a starting line, at a race. Like he's, he's just, he's ready. All right, here we go. Let's go. Let's do this. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting, for, boom, I'm waiting for the gun to go off so I can just forgive you. Nothing that we need to do to suffer for it. No pain that we need to endure to get it. All it is is simply coming back, coming to our senses. What am I doing here? What, what am I doing logging on to this website again? What am I doing opening this app again? What am I doing hanging out with this person again and doing things I shouldn't be doing? What am I doing being so selfish again? What am I doing lashing out in anger again? What am I doing here? All it takes is coming to your senses and not allowing the shame of the enemy to stop you. And then you just turn. You turn back towards him and he's already there. He's already there. This is amazing. This is amazing. God is not like us. It doesn't take a grace period for God to be able to forgive us. He has forgiven us already because he died for all of it already. There's nothing that he's holding against us. We went over that last week before it got harsh. It was really nice, right? The first half of that message was all about like how God forgives us over and over again. And then bam, the hammer came down. But that, that's how God is. He's just always ready to forgive us. So don't let the enemy tell you that, you that you are too shameful, that you're too gross, that you're too disgusting, that you fail too often, that you do all of these things, these things that are true. But even in that truth, he's lying. Because though, though those things are true in a sense, they're not true because that's not who you are anymore. For those of you who are believers in here, you're born again, you're a new creature, you're a child of God, you've been given that right by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when the enemy comes at you and says, man, you're disgusting, you're a sinner, it's like, yeah, that's true, but it's not true because I'm a new creature. I'm a new creature in Christ. These things are not me. This is the flesh. Recognize that. Like, all right, well, if it's not me, then what am I doing here? Okay, all right, let's go back to God. And he's already there. So... Let's move forward in that love and that grace and that forgiveness. Are you guys down with that? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this parable that Jesus gave. I mean, the Gospel of John tells us that there are so many things that Jesus did that if they were all written down, there wouldn't be enough books to contain them. So how many, how many other parables didn't make it because he just said so many things? And so, God, I thank you that this parable, that this parable is here. That Jesus shared this parable to, to, to describe to us, to share with us the grace and the forgiveness that you have for us. Even when we, as your children, sin against you. When we, as your children, we do things that basically communicate that we don't want to have anything to do with you. But I thank you that your forgiveness is just so great. And I thank you that the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, that that covers everything. All of those instances, it covers everything. And I thank you that though, though those thoughts and those actions, they do happen in us, 
that we don't have to take credit for it. We don't have to bear the guilt for it. We don't have to bear the responsibility for it because Jesus Christ already did that. We just need to repent. We just need to turn to you and you're ready to forgive. And so God, I just want to pray for anybody in here. God, you know everybody's heart in here. If there's anybody in here, God, who, who is like this lost child, they've turned away from you. Maybe they're thinking about turning away from you. God, I pray that your love and your kindness would bring them to a state of repentance. And they would come back. They would just turn around and allow you to bring them back into the fold. God, just thinking about that parable with the, with the lost sheep. The sheep didn't walk back to the fold. The, the shepherd picked up the sheep and brought the sheep back. God, I thank you. I thank you that, that man, we, we don't even have to, to walk back into the fold. All we need to do is turn around and you're just going to pick us up. You're going to carry us back into the fold. Thank you, God. Speak to your people, Lord. Speak to those who are far off. Bring them back, Lord. And Father, I pray that as we enter into this time of worship, God, that our hearts would just be singing to you, God, that this, this, this aroma of incense, God, would be pleasing to you and that you'd be glorified. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.